Hello and welcome to another episode of the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Rob McNeil. And I'm Jackie Broadhead. So today, uh, Jackie has been talking to uh, two experts on the use of artificial intelligence and other modern forms of technology in the management of uh, arrivals in Europe. So Jackie, what made you want to talk about this? Thanks, Rob. I feel like AI is kind of everywhere at the moment, um, from ChatGPT through to, you know, even within the university, how it might kind of impact um, teaching and, and learning here. And so it felt really important to kind of hear a little bit about what's been happening within migration governance, both processes that have been going on for a long time, as ever with these things, you know, you think it's the kind of new big thing and it actually turns out that some some of the things that have been happening are part of kind of much longer processes. But hearing about some of the new technologies and the way that genuinely they are impacting on decision making and migration governance. One of the questions for me is, I mean, is there a problem? I mean, is it, is it wrong to use uh, modern technology to try and understand who's arriving, what kind of risk they pose to people and for governments to, to, to try to ensure that they've got the most efficient mechanisms possible to assess people's claims and to deal with things quickly? Yeah, I mean, one of my um, favourite programmes is Mad Men, and there's a line that Don Draper says in that where he, he says, what if change is neither good nor bad, it just is. And that's something that I thought about quite a lot in this discussion, which is, is it the tools themselves that are the issue or this kind of systems that they're going into? I think one of the really interesting points in the discussion is if they are going into a system that contains inequalities, biases, discrimination, they have the possibility to amplify and replicate that form of discrimination. And particularly because they allow decisions to be made much quicker than humans might make decisions with fewer moments for reflection. You know, are we walking into a situation where actually we're going to see these kind of biases reflected on a much larger scale? But I also think it's something about the moment that we're at. It's true that these technologies have been around for a while, but this does feel like quite a transformative moment. And that means that policymakers and governments are kind of writing the rules of the game. And at the moment that we're writing those rules, it's probably a good idea for us to be having conversations about what we want these type of decisions to be, how much we want human judgment as part of them, you know, as opposed to kind of uh, predictive, you know, how much we want to be, if we were making an application for a visa or for asylum, how much we would want that to be done by a person looking at kind of us versus it being done on a kind of predictive algorithm. All of these sorts of huge questions I think society is kind of grappling with are also coming to play within migration governance and are happening both for us as citizens in deciding what's acceptable, what might not be acceptable, and then also within governments. So, I mean, there's a question here in that case about just allocation of resources and the scale of situations. I mean, like the UK, obviously, at the moment, we, I mean, one of, one of the things that we, that we talk about all the time at the moment is this massive backlog in the, asylum, uh, in the asylum system in the UK. That's largely a facet uh, of the slow processing of claims by, by decision makers. Now, I mean, surely removing a degree of the kind of, of human biases from decision making is is arguably a good thing sometimes isn't it i mean like it's not to say that it's not to say that automating processes is a perfect solution but if you've got an, a, a situation which is increasing consistently in scale don't we need technologies like this sometimes 
there's some really interesting examples within the discussion of the kind of tools that have been used. One of the things that really struck me, particularly about asylum, is that the tools that are being discussed are actually tools that then will aid human decision makers. So and there's a really interesting example about dialects that's, that, that we chat about. And it's, you know, what are the kind of skills that those decision makers have to be able to kind of deal with this new information that they're getting through? And it also really reminded me of some fantastic research um, that uh, Lena Rose, who was formerly of this parish and uh, now elsewhere, did looking at the way that we make credibility decisions. And the fact that these are such incredibly complex and kind of sophisticated decisions on a human level about somebody's well-founded fear of persecution, for example, and the extent to which we're able to understand the kind of new information that's coming in, whether that is supportive of better decision making or in fact, you know, whether it's just kind of adding to a kind of pile of information and making those decision making processes actually more more difficult. I feel like we haven't necessarily just got to grips with the complexity of of making asylum decisions and then we're adding this kind of whole extra layer onto it. I think your point about actually this could remove some of the biases is really interesting. And I think it's something that could be explored a lot further. I know a lot of the worry around AI is that it, far from removing biases, it kind of amplifies those biases because of the way that it's trained. It's AI, to my layperson's understanding, is kind of trained on the stuff that is already out there. And if the stuff that's already out there contains these these pre-existing biases then it is also going to have those so that's one of the ways in which it kind of becomes almost a little bit more human so I think I just feel like these are incredibly interesting and important discussions and the fact that this is not something that we're projecting forward into the future these are technologies that are being used right now and so it's a discussion that that should be had. In the same way that AI is trained and learns so do people. I mean, like, AI is not the only thing that learns. And so, I mean, you're, we're, we're constantly going to be in a situation, surely, where there has to be a balance struck between the way that people learn how to, how to either use a system or to manipulate a system or to play a system against the kind of the against the the sort of the idea of the perfect decision making process that may exist either with humans making solid sound choices based on complete understanding of a situation which is never there or machines doing something based on a perfect automated system there's always got to be some kind of of balance between these things I'm joined by Deria Oscolm senior research fellow at the refugee studies center at the university of oxford and Katerina Rodelli EU policy analyst at Access Now. Deria, we hear so much about how AI might transform our lives. Can you tell us about some of the ways in which it might transform and is already transforming migration governance? Yes, um, so yeah, we started hearing more about AI when it started impacting our lives. So for example, AI is transforming the workforce with many types of jobs now being automated, but it's also used in uh, many other areas, including migration. And we see various practices that state authorities have started using on migrants. So right now, from, in fact, from the moment that someone thinks about even a migrant, a possible migrant, thinks about even migrating to somewhere else, their data, their Google searches and their, the news that they're looking for are all being recorded and monitoring, monitored. 
And so, for example, predictive analytics systems help states to forecast the number of arrival of migrants on their borders. And then these systems can then lead to more increased um, border controls and pushbacks uh, of people who may need protection. We also see a variety of other types of new technologies being used, um, for example, drones or various types of sensors um, in border areas for surveillance purposes. Apart from those, in recent years, um, several states have started using new technologies to automate some of their casework processing. So these are often in the form of automated systems that take inputs from other databases. So, for example, in Norway, the Immigration Authority has automated the processing of citizenship applications. And the way that they can do that is they, by taking data from, uh, that is already available against that individual from other databases that they have, um, and then checking whether the person fulfills all the requirements to become a citizen. So the process can be fully automated if they have enough data about a person, basically. But um, just the more um, dangerous form of automation in this field is uh, when immigration authorities are using what is called risk assessment systems. And we have seen um, these types of systems, for example, in the UK or Netherlands as well. Um, in the UK case, um, thanks to huge efforts from civil society, it has been found that applications from certain nationalities were automatically categorized as high risk and that those applications were receiving a higher level of scrutiny from officers. Um, the civil society organizations, particularly Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and Foxglove as well, they found that the system had also a feedback loop problem, which means that applications from a certain nationality being rejected at a higher rate would also um, influence future applications from that nationality. So obviously, um, these type of systems can create discrimination on the basis of nationality, um, and it's quite risky and important to um, monitor them. Absolutely. It's amazing how much is already happening. Um, Katerina, there are some big changes that happen in at EU level, but not seemingly with very much regulation. Can you tell us about how some of the technologies that Deria talked about are changing things in the Schengen zone? And and why we might want to kind of regulate things to reduce some of the discrimination that we've heard about. Yes, thank you. So I think that an important starting point for orientate ourselves in this discussion is to reflect on the fact that new technologies in the area of EU migration policies are not that new. And in fact, they were actually rolled out and developed together with the new uh, design of migration policies in the 90s. So in the 90s, um, the Schengen area was, um, was started with 95, uh, the abolishment of internal frontiers uh, between European member states and the, a new European common external frontier was developed, what civil society uh, nowadays calls Fortress Europe. And digitalization of borders and technology was since the beginning, since the get-go, crucial for the functioning of Fortress Europe. The first large-scale database, in fact, this Schengen Information System was uh, deployed in '95, and it had the purpose of facilitating police cooperation uh, among member states as well as border management. And it had information on different categories of people, such as missing persons or people wanted for arrest. And in the same way for the implementation of the Dublin regulation at the beginning of the 2000s, the EURDAC database was uh, implemented. And the EURDAC, data, EURDAC database um, holds inform source, uh, 
biometric information on asylum seekers. And it's fundamental for the implementation of the Dublin regulation that um, should support member states in redistributing asylum seekers that arrive at the first countries uh, at the European southern borders, usually. This is important to say that uh, technology was key from the beginning and is important for um, implementing punitive migration policies that are very much focused on enforcing deportation or impeding people from entering the European Union in, even outside of the European borders, for example, uh, in embassies while request applying for a visa, as Dara was explaining before. And if we look at the uh, European policy landscape, there is a variety of different legislations that have allowed for the introduction of different technological solutions. We have um, European, we have, we have migration policies, such as policies, regulations that underpin um, migration databases such as Eurodoc, VIS, which is the database for the in, information sharing on visas, uh, the Schengen information systems and others. But we also have a regulation about interoperability of all of these migration databases. We have the new pact on asylum and migration that allows for the introduction of new technology. But we also have regulations on other type of levels such as uh, digital policies, such as the Artificial Intelligence Act that also regulates the use of technology in the migration context. We also have it in the context of law enforcement, such as the Europol regulation that allows for more power for police forces to use um, AI-based systems and surveillance technology, and also um, legislations or initiatives about funding that allow for the money to invest on this type of, the, of um, um, technologies. Thanks, Katarina. Daria, I... I'm really interested in this difference between um, some of the processes that Katerina has spoken about, which I guess are around surveillance and collecting information, and some of them that are kind of predictive and about making decisions. And one of the areas that we know um, where policymakers have to make huge decisions is in the asylum process, deciding whether somebody has a kind of well-founded fear of persecution. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how these technologies are affecting the asylum system, both for asylum seekers themselves and also for the people making the decisions. So in asylum decision making, um, we see, well, we, we can see the introduction of some of the new technologies, not to automate the decision, the whole process itself, but to automate some of the evidence that is used in decision making. So, for example, one of them is um, used to determine the applicant's identity. Uh, the immigration authority in Germany has been using this, what is called a dialect recognition tool, uh, to identify the applicant's language. So this technology uh, is quite very much like other types of biometric technologies. It can identify a person's voice data in terms of percentages. So it generates a report basically saying that this person speaking um, speaks 64% Levantine Arabic and 16% Gulf Arabic and so on. And it's really fundamentally, I mean, this, this particular technology is fundamentally changing the way uh, language is assessed in asylum decision making. 
Uh, whereas in previously, um, it was used, obviously it was always human linguists doing these kind of analysis and they were recommended to make a qualitative analysis of a person's language. So they would say, okay, this person is very likely speaking Levantine Arabic and then leave it there. Whereas this new um, technology is giving percentages and is changing how then the decision maker uh, is perceiving the applicant. Because it's 64% Levantine Arabic, but um, uh, not so much the rest and so on. And another technology that is used more widely is mobile phone data extraction. So a number of countries in Europe and elsewhere, such as Germany and Netherlands, for example, in Europe, have introduced this technology, again, to determine the, an applicant's identity, but also to identify their travel route, and then use that as an evidence to determine whether or not the person is um, telling the truth. So it's, of course, this technology is very invasive to uh, the person's private life, um, extracting all the data available on their mobile phone, but also research in this area shows us that mobile phones are often exchanged among migrants. Uh, they can be sold, they can be um, just used by their friends and family members. And all types of uh, contradictions that come out from that uh, can potentially be used against the applicant's credibility during the decision-making process. So overall, we see that these technologies cre really create additional grey areas for applicants to address uh, during the interview process. Thanks so much, Daria. And Katerina, the Protect Not Surveil campaign is looking to make a human rights-based argument for regulating some of these forms of new technologies, um, but it also banning some others, um, including some of the kind of predictive and profiling systems that we've talked about. Can you explain why the campaign is so worried about these forms of profiling and, and what areas actually shouldn't be used um, in migration governance at all, in your view? Yes, the Protect Survey campaign fits into a broader civil society effort to draw some red lines on the use of artificial intelligence-based systems uh, in a way that irreversibly violate fundamental rights. And we see that in the migration context, people on the move and third country nationals are usually used as the testing ground for some type of technology. So it's uh, crucial that they are banned. Um, some type of systems that should be banned not only relate to profiling type of systems, but also systems that amount to biometric mass surveillance. So there is a call for a ban on remote biometric identification systems that could identify people in, in on a remote base and that could be used outside detention center or at the borders to identify people that might have their biometric data already in databases. Um, systems such as emotion recognition systems that claim to infer the emotional status of a person from their facial micro gestures and that reinforces this automated suspicious, suspicion against uh, non-European citizens. And then profiling systems, as Daria was explaining before, these systems that claim to assess the risk that a person poses are inherently biased. Uh, the example that Daria was making before from the UK, but also from the Netherlands, of automated risk assessment used in the context of triaging visa applicants. Well, these type of systems are assessing how much a person might pose a risk to either public security or a risk to oversteer their visa uh, based on some categories that are predetermined by some people that by nature 
cannot be objective because they build a system of risks that is embedded in some specific assumptions. So when it comes to risk assessments, you have some risk indicators that are pre-decided. So some categories that are decided to be a factor of risks, uh, for example, country of origin or level of education or um, type of employment. And then for each uh, risk indicator, a screening rule is associated. So for each indicator, a different risk grade will be calculated. So in the case of the Netherlands, for example, um, in the triage system for visa application, um, applicants from Suriname were systematically, received systematically a higher score when it comes to the risk based on the country of origin. And the same went with the case from the UK. Applicants coming from certain African countries were systematically receiving a higher score when it came to the risk indicator of country of origin. But the same could apply also for level of education when people um, go to universities that have religious background, they might receive a higher score when their university is, is a Muslim um, university, who could give this uh, idea that it's related to uh, Muslim affiliation. Um, and there are many other types of examples. So profiling systems, as well as other types of systems that protect not surveil is calling for a ban, are all those types of systems that would reinforce systemic oppression and forms of discrimination under the guise of technical neutrality. A final question for you both. I guess a lot of this discussion is quite scary and difficult to hear about some of the risks, in particular in relation to discrimination. But I wonder, are there any causes for optimism in terms of the use of these new technologies in the in the right hands? Do you think um, there could be any ways in which they could solve some of the long-standing issues within migration governance? Um, is there any positive note on which we can end? <laughs> Daria, I'll start with you. So some of the technologies that we have mentioned, such as automated processing of visa applications, can of course bring benefits around speed, but those benefits are not equal for all. So some applicants can of course receive a speedier response to their applications in one day because it's automated and it's low risk and they receive a positive response, but others can be under more scrutiny and probably receive a rejection. But overall, um, we can see that most of these technologies have been designed in a way to benefit state authorities themselves, to kind of ease and lessen their workloads. And they are not, I mean, the only way that they can be beneficial for migrants if they are, can, can happen if they are first thought about and designed out of migrants' own needs. And we haven't mentioned in this talk, but there are some technologies that are designed, for example, to match refugees with uh, municipalities and areas that are best for their future employment or specific needs. There is, for example, the Matchen project in Germany, which is trying to basically match refugees' needs with municipalities' capacities across the country. So that's a really good example of uh, what technology can achieve if they center around migrants and refugees' needs themselves. Um, but apart from this, I guess, I mean, we haven't talked about it at all in this talk, but it's worth remembering that even if it's for the best intentions, every technology also brings new demands on natural resources and has consequences for the environment. So we really need to be always asking ourselves whether we really need them and whether this is really cannot be done any other way. Katerina, any grounds for optimism? I think I want 
be the one to bring the uh, optimism uh, in this conversation. But because I don't think the the framework where this debate is ha- is, is happening is is the one that um, will bring safer solutions. And I will take from the abolitionist uh, movements the idea that we don't need a reform in a system that is already is created to um, oppress certain people. So I don't think the question is around the positive use of technology, but about the policies themselves. Uh, of course, the technology is not a problem. It's not a problem per se. We see some uses of technology, the same type of technology used in different contexts, for example, drones to detect people in distress. If you put it in the hands of Frontex, it can lead to the facilitation of pushback through the Libyan Coast Guard, whereas also the NGO Sea-Watch is using drones to detect the presence of people that are escaping from Libya towards uh, Italy. And we'll, based on the detection of the drone, we'll then lo- locate their, um, their vessels to uh, start the search and rescue mission. But the thing is that technology is always used by someone that is always um, advancing their own priorities. So when it comes to migration management, what needs to be done is rethink the whole infrastructure, the whole objectives behind the policies. And if we want to address the, uh, the problem of discrimination, the problem of violence that is happening also through the use of technology, we should be more bold and more courageous in calling for systems that um, prioritize justice, that prioritize the ability and the freedom of people to move, and that does not hide beyond technologies or opaque systems that in a way de-responsibilize the authorities that are in in fact um, legalizing very violent policies that are causing uh, death at our and within our borders. So yeah, uh, not op- optimism, but for for sure, I, I believe there is a way to to improve in that. And I would like to close to refer to a, a, a report, very interesting, that actually brings some optimism, uh, which was written by the Equinox Project. Um, and it's, uh, it's about Fortress Europe, uh, and it actually details three ways in which uh, we can challenge and change um, discriminatory EU migration policies. That seems like as good a place as any for us to leave it. Thanks so much to you both. You've been listening to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Rob McNeil. And I'm Jackie Broadhead.